Hello and welcome to Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. While support for action is increasing, climate change is a wicked problem that is overly complicated and the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to give voice to those who can lead the way. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, I bring you the experts and present you information, facts and interesting ideas with the odd dash of politics to spice it all up. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. In today's episode, we break down how recent bushfires have sparked unprecedented public outcry about the link between climate change and bushfires in Australia. While the link is not new, it previously appeared to be a voice that was outside of what was the mainstream conversation and was largely dismissed. However, this year, there seems to be a palpable shift in the public discourse. It has become a more popular view that climate change is leading to deadlier bushfires, with 24X fire chiefs standing together on the issue and countless numbers of opinion pieces littering our papers and our news feeds. It is hotting up the political debate on climate. However, bushfires are a deadly political football and the discourse has become emotive and inflamed. For all of those standing on the sideline who are not in the thick of actual danger or in the midst of the political scrum that is handballing this issue around, it is a difficult one to judge. Just how much of the accusations are true and what level of blame can we apportion to Australia's climate policies? We do know that the fire is a natural part of Australia's landscape and we have variations in our climatic cycle. What, if anything, has changed and why? More importantly, what does the future look like and what can we do? Breaking it down with me today is Neil Vivi. Neil is the former CEO of the Country Fire Authority and current chairman of the Emergency Services Foundation. He was one of the ex-fire chiefs who made headlines in recent weeks for pushing the conversation on climate and fire risk. Neil, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you and thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to have you on board today. Uh, Look, to, to put it simply, Neil, why is the current situation not normal? What has changed? It isn't quite that simple. (laughs) What we've got is we've got a combination of a number of things. One is three years worth of drought, and that's dried out all of the bush. We've also got a very late rainy season, if none at all. Then we have fire starts, dry lightning around September, and they've just kept going all the way through. Now, people are saying, oh, we've had long fire seasons before. We have, but over the past decade, they've been increasing in size. So if you extrapolate that out, by the year 2030, the entire year will be a fire season. And that's not too far from the truth, the way we're going. Look, and that uh, leads well into my next question, which is, you know, the, the conditions are significantly worse this year. We know that Australia has cyclic climatic conditions due to El Nino and El Nino, um, is this just another normal part of the cycle or are there other factors that are um, making a difference as well? Well, I think what's happening is, well, I know what's happening because scientists have been telling us for a long time, some people aren't listening, but scientists have been telling us for a long time, that it's no longer a matter of the traditional weather patterns. Once you get rises in temperature... You get sea level rises in temperature as well, and that starts pushing the planet's weather around. Australia is that end of the planet where um, dry is the norm. 
And if you look at just, just look at Australia as a continent, it is dry across the entire continent with green along the edges. Well, the green along the edges is slowly disappearing as the temperatures increase. That's the big problem. The next problem is that the Australian population is in that green section along the edges. 80% of us live on the, near the beach. So what we're looking at is we're looking at us, us being sandwiched in extreme weather conditions and fire, pushing us all closer and closer to the seashore. And that's not a joke. When you look where the fires are in New South Wales at the moment, coming into Gosford, coming into Coffs Harbour, coming around Sydney, it's just one of those things that Blind Freddy can see that you have a problem and the problem is a disease. The fires are just a symptom of that problem. And the disease, as far as we're concerned, is climate change. So I guess the, the, the question is, to what extent is climate change affecting the risk? How do we know how much we can attribute to it? We don't. But what we do know is that there's a correlation between increased temperatures and increased fire danger and longer fire seasons. Unfortunately, being Australia, we're going to have the cyclone season hitting us just after the end of, um, end of February, uh, and that's going to increase in intensity as well. The experts are saying maybe we won't have as many cyclones, but they'll be even larger and stronger than the ones we've had before. So the disaster... Um, scenario, again, I'll go back and repeat myself, is a symptom of climate change and we have to attack the disease. So um, a bit of a tangent here, but a common piece of ammunition that that um, gets thrown into the this isn't climate change conversation is it's the greenies blocking the hazard reduction burning that is creating the crisis. Now, can you please help unpack this for us? Um, mm. I'm guessing that there are many aspects that get factored into the decision-making for hazard reduction burns. Can you please explain all of that context and okay, well, help the, us to de debunk that the argument? Fur the furphy that it's a greenies causing the problem is just that. We, we and the traditional owners of this land have relied on fire for a long time. Um, even they can't light fires in the conditions we have now. We're finding that when it rains in the middle of July, this is all across the coast, then it rains so heavily that you can't light a fire. Your worst fire bike wouldn't have a chance. Then it all of a sudden switches over to the fire season. And the gap between the two may be a month either side of winter and a month coming into um, or, um, spring. So maybe May and then maybe August you'll get a chance to do fuel reduction burning. Traditionally, we would be starting fuel reduction burning in February, going through in April, through until September. So there's a massive amount of time to use for fuel reduction burning. It's just too risky now. Mm. Too risky for two reasons. It's hot and it's hot and windy. And the second one is so many people are now living in the bush that to do a fuel reduction burn could put them at risk. Yeah. So what I'm hearing there is that the the, the decision-making around what is being done from a fuel reduction perspective 
you, the the space that you have to play is becoming more and more um, restricted because of yeah. the seasons and other factors like population. Does um, environmental factors come into that decision making? It's it's the main factor. If it's if it's very windy and very hot, mm. and the ground is dry, you mm. don't light a fire. Yeah. Very simple as that. So the services and the forestry departments around Australia have very strict criteria as to when they light fires, mm. proven methods that sometimes even when you've got the full risk assessment, they go awry. Mm. So if you've got this criteria, which is a safety criteria, and some of the points are basically going beyond the level that you can safely light a fire, then it's impossible to keep up with the traditional way of doing fuel reduction burning, which means that the people that are saying burn more just don't understand that you can't burn more. I used to have, when I was chief executive, a crystal ball on my desk. And if someone said, we need more fuel reduction burning, I'd say, have a look at the crystal ball and you tell me where the next fire is going to be and I'll do some fuel reduction burning around that. <laughs> so is it a question of resources then in terms of available resources to be able to respond to good fire reduction burning days? If we had the resources to do the fire reduction burning that is needed, then we would have smoke over the city of Sydney like we have today. Mm. Now, today is... Uh, Tuesday the 10th, isn't it? Tuesday the 10th of December, okay, 2019. So for the sake, of the sake of the podcast, you'll remember that day as a very bad day. If we continue to do fuel reduction burning, we'll put more people at risk through asthma and heart problems than we will through fuel reduction burning. So what can Australia do to prepare for this changing risk? What needs to change in terms of how we prepare for bushfire season and how we respond to it? First thing there has to be is the acknowledgement that for the next 20 years, this is going to continue and get worse. You're not going to have an availability to say in 10 years' time, oops, I didn't know that. Um, you have to start planning for it now. And everything, there are all of the tools that fire services use, there's backburning and there's aircraft, there are all of those things. They're all very, very expensive. So to use them effectively, you need to have large amounts of federal money to do what's needed. There are also other ways of doing things, like the Americans use privatised fire services. Um, we might be using helicopters as first response appliances. Instead of waiting for a fire truck to get there, they'll be the first ones to do it. There must be a number of other things, and I've seen... Um, drones that can go around lighting backburns instead of having a whole lot of firefighters do it, which is safer and mm. able to do that sort of stuff. So there are things in technology that we need to utilise. I don't have the answers, but the up-and-coming fire services, those with the latest technology, they need to sit down with the people in Treasury and say, this is our risk. This is what's going to happen to our country. If you want to mitigate that, this is what you have to pay. The next issue becomes the people themselves. If you wander around the Blue Mountains, you wander around Dandenong Ranges, Mount Lofty, any of these places where there's a great interface with the, um, with the bush, 
you'll find that every second house or every third house have no intention of preparing for a major fire. Mm. When the fire goes through, often the houses are more flammable than the bush around them. So there is a massive education program that needs to be done and I think we need to look at town planning as well. So it's not just a more helicopters, it's an integrated approach, education to the community, some legislation to stop people. Can't, you can't build in a flood zone. Why can you build in a fire zone? And, and I guess what I'm hearing there is that the integrated approach needs to take into consideration that the risk profile that we see today is going to become more and more normal and potentially increase. That's exactly right. The last decade we've had the highest temperatures in record. Um, we've had the hottest summers in record. Uh, do you have to be hit over the head with a Monty Python salmon or something like that? I don't know what has to happen before <laughs> people wake up to the fact that we've got a problem. And um, are you able to talk to me about how your role with this coalition of other uh, fire chiefs came about and what inspired you guys to come together and, and, and speak up? Uh, Greg Mullins needs to take the um, kudos for that. Uh, he joined the Climate Council and started talking to a few of us. And within in a nanosecond, we said, we're with you, mate. Mm. And it built from one, two, five, ten, twenty, and now we've got 25 and we have a number knocking on the door each looking at their specialty mm. and each looking at the sorts of things that need to be done. I mean, my background is mainly in volunteer services. I cannot see volunteers lasting much longer on the fire grounds in New South Wales and Queensland. I know that the Climate Council is arguing that this is not normal, but actually the level of climate change we have now is already locked in. We are simply trying to avoid it getting worse. So if so, is this the new normal? Yeah, it is. And that's what they're telling us in um, Spain at the moment. And everyone over there and all the scientists are saying we're getting close to a tipping point where it could be too late. Um, and I feel for my grandchildren. Mm. I feel deeply for my grandchildren because I don't know the sort of world they're going to live in. And for Australia to get the fossil award two days in a row, um, which is really, you could laugh at it, but it's an insult to people of Australia that that's what the rest of the world think of us. If I, if I put my sceptical hat on, uh, the question I ask is, even if one was to accept that the fires are a result of climate change, Australia is such a small emitter that having uh, an effective emissions reduction policy won't actually affect our bushfire risk uh, in the short or medium term. Also, this is a result of change that has already happened and locked in. Why do you think we should be talking about climate change if the issue is really about how we evolve our fire preparedness? We'll go back to the, um, the assumption that we're only a small emitter and we're not part of the system. I don't think my taxes make much difference to the overall tax budget. I don't think I pay my taxes this year. Um, if we looked, had that same thing, we go, ah, oh, World War I, World War II, ah, oh, bugger them, that's there in Europe. We'll go, just not look at that. Uh, we'll put our head in the sand and not help. So it becomes something that is going to affect if you look at our neighbours, our near neighbours, the Pacific Islands, 
we've got a massive task to do to help them out. So as one of the largest per capita um, emitters of carbon, we need to look at ourselves very, very carefully and say, sure, it's not a big amount, but the amount of coal that we dig out of the ground and send to other places so they can use it um, has to be looked at as well. I, uh, I really like the the tax analogy. It's one that Malcolm Turnbull's been re- um, yeah, I stole using. That from him. <laughs> <laughs> He's been using it recently, and it, his argument is, uh, you know, you can't just not pay your proportion of defence tax because your dollars don't make a, a difference to Australia's defence capability. Yeah. But it's actually our duty as as a citizen to pay our taxes and um, and it's the same sort of argument here. It's just putting it in a global citizenship context. So I like that we like the same analogy there. Well, <laughs> just, just think about it. We When I was with the CFA, each fire service in Australia adopts a Pacific island. Um, Western Australia has Timor, Queensland has um, Papua New Guinea, Melbourne Fire Brigade has Samoa, blah, 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 and we had Fiji. Mm. And back then, they were, their biggest concerns were um, tidal wave and climate change. Mm. And they didn't even put cyclones on the list until they had a number of them hit them, which were far beyond what normally happens around the islands. So should we just go... uh, that's Fiji's problem, let's just leave them, leave them go. They'll, they'll drown, doesn't matter. We've got to actually be part of a community. We actually live in a community, not an economy. Taking it from the global to the very local, um, it is a very topical issue. We are having this conversation in Sydney on the 10th of December 2019, which is a day that is being reported as having the worst air quality on record for Sydney, with some suburbs hitting 12 times the hazardous threshold. I don't think that many Sydney-siders could have imagined that this is part of our new normal. Uh, How do you think or hope that these events will push the climate action conversation in the right direction? It's not at the moment and that's really sad Mm. because what we have is we have an opportunity to say, wake up, look out the door, this is the problem you have. We have people saying, oh, well, you know, it blows, that's just because the wind's blowing our way. We get this every year, just the wind's going to be blowing a different direction. Well, unfortunately, it's going to be surrounding Sydney, so it doesn't matter which way the wind comes from, unless the fires are in the middle of the sea, um, then you're going to have significant problems. I think what will come out of this, and it'll be a real shake-up, is how many people, babies and elderly people, died from this smoke and smog. It takes a number of months before it goes through all the inquiries currently on stuff like that. But they'll start coming out with figures very, very soon. Well, not soon, but a couple of months, which show that this has killed more people than any bushfire we've had in New South Wales. And look, I think that's uh, one of the questions that's been top of my mind quite a lot over the last few weeks as we realise that this wasn't a one or two day event, but it's been going for weeks now and likely to go through to the end of summer. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have enough time in one episode to to break (laughs) that down as well, but it is definitely going to be on the agenda in in the coming weeks because 
you know, personally, I think about what could we have invested in climate mitigation versus the cost of um, these events over the past week uh, in terms of our public health risk. But conversation for another day. Um, My final question is bushfires are terrifying and overwhelmingly powerful. Given the science that we've discussed today, um, what gives you hope for the future? Um, Is there a way forward and can we get it right? It's called leadership and it's one thing that this country doesn't have in climate change. It's astounding that our federal government won't act. Actually, I must say Victoria has a new climate change framework, Um, one of the few states that has that. They should be congratulated on that and that should be part of the system for the rest of the world, rest of Australia anyway. um, So leadership is, is the first one. What gives me hope is that the economics behind uh, wind farms, the economics behind all the new energy systems, all the new technologies are getting to the stage where we won't be building any more coal-fired power stations because they're just not economical to build anymore. If you looked at the report that came out yesterday, they were talking about power builds dropping in most states across Australia, except Western Australia, because of the new technology. Now, if we stick to the old technology, that wouldn't have happened. And I think the other thing that gives me hope is that we have some very smart cookies in Australia, that they will be the ones that'll push the change and it'll be a snowball that can't be stopped economically. It's just not worth going into a system that's actually going to destroy the planet you live on we still have some people that are very, very greedy and they have to be overcome. Well, uh, thank you for breaking it down with us today. I think that people hopefully understand a lot more around the complexities of um, how we're responding to the current risk, what's driving it, and um, what our options are for the future. So thank you for joining me. Greatly appreciated. And uh, we might have to have you back next time we're talking about the health impacts of current fire crisis. So thank you, Well, I think on another side of things, um, Greg Mallins is chairman of the Ambulance Board. So he'll know exactly what the problems were in health. Okay. Well, we might have to have uh, Greg on the show. (laughs) Thanks for that referral. Thanks a lot, Sophie. For what feels like the first time in my lifetime, the impacts of climate change and its consequences are being felt by city dwellers. Smoke from the New South Wales fires is suffocating us, and after weeks of shocking air quality, Sydney siders have now accepted, with a bewildered outrage, that smoke is here to stay, likely for the whole summer. The conclusion is that this is our new normal. In addition to face masks and air purifiers, we have all somehow obtained a burning interest in fire management policy and what can be done differently. However, the smoke has prompted numerous conversations that can go around in circles as ultimately no one understands what we can do differently. So I decided to look at what alternatives can give us hope for living with this new normal. In my search, I came across Dennis Rose, who is a longtime practitioner and champion of re-establishing Indigenous land and sea management in its many forms. He has also led efforts around the fantastic World Heritage nomination of the Bujbim Cultural Landscape. 
Dennis runs land management at Gunditjmara Land Management in Western Victoria, where they are pioneering new approaches to land management. Dennis, thank you for joining me on the show. My pleasure, Sophie. Now, please do correct me if I get any of the pronunciations wrong, but we might just get straight into it. Um, one of the the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is that there's a common counter-argument that sometimes is used to normalise current, the current fire situation in the Australian landscape and that it that the Australian landscape needs fire and that traditional owners have always used fire as part of their land management techniques and that it's actually needed in order to regenerate. In a nutshell, can you explain to us and help us understand the the premise of this assumption and just how relevant is it to the, the current bushfire situation today? Yes, well, I think that the, the current bushfire situation and that's been developing over the last few years uh, really brings home the need for uh, um, increased uh, burning, um, particularly uh, small-scale burning. Um, we don't need to burn vast areas, but uh, we, we tend to concentrate on what we call smaller-scale burns um, that, are, that are fairly strategic. And uh, we, we burn for a number of reasons, one for uh, fire protection, one for fuel reduction, another one for fuel reduction. Um, also burn for cultural purposes, regenerating some of our uh, native grasses, what we call our punyard grass, which we make our eel baskets. Um, and we also burn to uncover some of the uh, some of the stone cultural features, such as the fish traps and the stone house sites on the Budgepin uh, cultural landscape. So what I understand is, is not only using it from a cultural perspective, but you're also integrating traditional fire management, management into... Um, European approaches to fire management. So how is that integration occurring and how is that different to um, yeah. other fire management areas and what do you think the different outcomes are going to be? So I think that it's been a bit of a learning process uh, for both ourselves as traditional owners and also uh, the fire agencies, uh, both the, uh, the State Government Department of Environment and also the Country Fire Authority, we work very closely with both agencies um, and we see it as a two-way learning process that uh, um, people can, uh, within those uh, agencies, uh, understand some of the traditional practices that we uh, we, we have and we, we want to carry out. And we also uh, get a, a better understanding of some of the, some of the fire issues uh, that, uh, that these, these, these people face, you know, week in, week out. It's been a very much a learning process, uh, one where we where we have uh, good partnerships, good relationships. Uh, we generally call them robust partnerships that we can tell each other what uh, we need to hear, not what we'd like to hear. Um, and uh, uh, we've, you know, it's taken us, it take, taken us a few years for us to all get a good understanding of, of, of what we what we what we mean when we talk about Aboriginal burning. I think, yeah. From a practical sense, are you getting different and better outcomes from a fire management perspective? Oh, yes, we are. Look, certainly in terms of protecting our uh, cultural heritage places and uh, and the assets that we have on country, um, such as visitor facilities and um, visitor centres and, and uh, toilets and campgrounds, etc. we certainly... Uh, 
feel much more confident that we we're invoking some uh, some good uh, fire protection uh, practices, um, and also uh, with our with our cultural burning. Um, again, that that protection protection of the sites is is is, is really uh, important. I, I guess the, the the key question that I want to um, ask today is if we look to the current crisis in New South Wales. Is this integrated approach something that could be used in in other jurisdictions? And um, it, is it a silver bullet? And can it actually be used to reduce the level of crisis that we're experiencing today? Yeah, well, look, I, I certainly know that uh, some other traditional owner groups, uh, you know, burn um, again do this small scale burning. Uh, for private landowners, for those people who may want to protect their house that, that don't have uh, fire uh, fire skills, um, that they they can do some some low key burning. We we certainly do when we burn. We burn in the um, the late autumn into the winter months. In fact, we this year we burnt burnt in July down here, and uh, um, so cool burns, um, strategic burns, not. Not large scale ones. Look, I, I talk about our traditional practice and and our current practice, contemporary practices, as complementing some of the fire protection work that happens. And I I, I think that people are, are starting to learn that we can we can control fire in a, in, in a in a in a in a different manner than what we've been accustomed to. And we certainly need to with uh, with the uh, climate predictions uh, being what they are. So does this mean that mainstream, I can't think of a better way to, to, to articulate it, but mainstream European fire management measures are deprioritised? Um, and how do other sources of knowledge get incorporated into the mix? Oh, look, I, I think I think we blended it all in together. I, I think that's essentially what we do with with our partners, um, and 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 they they do as well. So I think that we we also talk about you know, burning for uh, some some of the rare and threatened uh, um, plant species uh, about regenerating them. We we like to do that as a, an environmental work. Again, the uh, you know the the, um, the fire agencies in the state aren't equipped to do those small scale burns. You know, we're talking about a few hectares for burning a. Uh, you know, a, a patch of, of orchids, for example, to uh, encourage their regrowth. Um, so, look, we we, we complement each other, and uh, I think that it's 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 really about it's it's really important that it's another perspective, it's another way to look at at how we manage land in general, and and I think that we we we, we see that over a number of aspects that we we deal in with uh, with land management practice. I mean, bushfires can be incredibly terrifying, particularly when um, we look at the catastrophic fires that are threatening New South Wales at the moment. At the national level, what gives you hope for the future? And is there a way forward and how can we get it right? We are facing a climate emergency. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And we need to to be aware and have a good understanding of some some other options in terms of fire protection and, and fire management. I think that 
as I said, that it's, it's really about complementing some of the work that's, that's, that's being done, uh, adding value to uh, to it, and uh, sharing our, our knowledge and also uh, obtaining uh, some, some better knowledge and, and, and advice. Look, that is uh, such a great addition to today's episode in terms of providing us with a different perspective and also a, a sense that there might be some positives that come out of this in terms of us looking for different ways of doing things and how can we learn from the people who, who live on and manage the land. So thank you so much for being here and joining us on the show today. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. Thank you also to our guests who joined us today, Dennis Rose and Neil Bibby. Also thanks to Patty O'Leary and the Country Needs People organisation for background context and introductions. A reminder that the views of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily representative of the organisations they work for. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out to me on my website, sophietaylorprice.com, or on Instagram or Twitter. I look forward to breaking down the big issues again with you next week. Until then, bye for now and see you on the flip side.